law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, and I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We obviously have a lot of news to cover since last Wednesday, including first and foremost the indictment of one Donald J. Trump, a ruling that grants summary judgment in part to Dominion in their defamation suit against Fox News, and Trump's collaboration, shockingly enough, with Jim Jordan's weaponization committee. Yeah. And we also have the conviction of Douglas Mackey for election interference in 2016. Uh, he's the guy who sent out the text messages to tell people to vote for Hillary from home via text message. And uh, the indictment of a Russian operative at Johns Hopkins University. I'm so glad you're here for, to talk to us about this because this is right up your alley, Pete. But first, we want to thank our patrons. You make this show possible, y'all. We forgot to read the new patrons last week, so this list covers the past two weeks of new patrons, and we're going to have to split these up across the show because we have over 60. So here's the first round. Big thank you to Barbara Dufree, Melissa Cavalone, Stephanie V, Rebecca Simer, Kim Jacobs Beck, Amy Trumbull, Michelle Lehman, Patricia Diltz, uh, Judy Starr, Amy Fisher, Garf Wynn, Maria Tokarchuk, Becky Lieb Kennedy, Susan Moss, Ann Pierce, Diana Santiago, uh, Evett. Allerdings, Susan Lankford, Shirley Brindle, and uh, I apologize if I butchered any of your names, but thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting this show. Yeah, it's amazing. Just amazing. You make it possible. We'll read some more in the second and third segment of the show. You can sign up to support us at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D for as little as a dollar an episode. All right, let's kick this off with the first of what will likely be many indictments of the former guy. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, a first in a couple of ways, right? The first is the first current or former president ever to be criminally indicted. And the second first is, I, I think you're right. This is at a minimum, I would expect to see one more between Georgia and the feds. And I frankly think there'll be a couple. Now, well, how many Jack Smith gets in uh, by the time he's done? I don't know, but I would think between the scope of what he's looking for, it's not unreasonable. I think it's my belief more likely than not that he'll see an indictment both in Georgia and federally. So it's big news, big historic event. I saved my paper copy of the New York Times that has the big Trump indicted, and it was like they put extra orange toner. And for whatever reason, you know, sometimes the colors are off, or maybe it was me. It just the the front page is especially orange, but uh, momentous, and you know, I think a victory for the rule of law. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the indictment actually has in it, detail wise. Yeah, lots of pundits out there arguing about intent and what the charges could be and if it's campaign finance violation, if it's federal. We saw Cy Vance appear on the Jen Psaki show on Sunday and remind us that uh, Barr actually told the SDNY to call Cy Vance and, you know, stand down 
And it and kind of did it in a way like don't stand down because we don't want you to prosecute Trump. Stand down because we're looking at it. You know, we're let us do our, you know, our thing. And that's happens. And usually a DA says, all right, cool. You're the feds. Go first or whatever. Uh, and he and he did that. And so that's really interesting. But I also want to temper everybody's expectations. I don't think you're going to see any obstruction of justice charges on that because Bill Barr, as attorney general, has broad authority to decline to prosecute cases. Um, that's what he can do. It's it's probably why we haven't seen any indictment on the Mueller obstruction of justice charges, because Barr swooped in and wrote it down, put it in writing that he even if he could be indicted, he didn't obstruct justice. And he he gave a couple of shitty legal reasons, which aren't really true. But he also gave his subjective declination uh, to, of, of charges to prosecute uh, based on his authority as the attorney general. That's why we haven't seen anything like that. And, and remember, the DOJ isn't the attorney general. The DOJ is the DOJ. So it's really difficult for a Department of Justice to go against its own rulings, uh, even if it was a corrupt attorney general who put that ruling into effect. So, you know, I think I want to sort of temper everybody's expectations about that. But also what's kind of interesting before we get into the background of, of this indictment is that if Jack Smith uh, does come out and indict, let's say, on the documents case uh, for obstruction, because we found out this week there's a whole lot of uh, evidence that he has now that we didn't know that he had before. Uh, but we, you know, I we assumed he had, but now we know he has it. Uh, because of the New York Supreme Court schedule, you know, the, the 17 count conviction against the Trump organization took like a year and a half. Uh, if if Jack Smith comes out to indict, that trial could be over before this New York trial begins. So, you know, I you know, we just want to make sure we sort of all understand the timelines involved here. But, you know, last week we were told that the grand jury in New York wouldn't be meeting to hear evidence in Trump's case again for the remainder of the week. And I said, ah, but the wording, Pete, I said, the wording <laughs> is very specific here. It says on Thursday they will not hear evidence in the Trump case. They didn't say they wouldn't vote on the Trump case. And it turns out I was right. They sure as hell voted. Um, we got about a 30 minute heads up when we found out that law enforcement was prepping for uh, uh, for something. And I was like, uh oh, looks like, uh oh. And, and sure enough, Thursday night, we got the indictment. We talked about it on this weekend's bonus episode for patrons. And then so they voted Thursday. There was a possible additional witness that was heard for about 30 minutes. Uh, on that day, according to some reports, we don't know who that was. And I'm not sure I'm interested in your thoughts about this because nobody rep saw that person go in and out. And that makes me wonder that that if that is because the person who came in is already in prison. And, <laughs> and mm. we know that Weisselberg changed lawyers to Seth Rosenberg, who is, uh, by the way, a racketeering expert, right? He actually ran the Rackets Bureau over at the Manhattan DA's office for a while. Uh, so not sure who that witness was, but they apparently had a 30-minute witness there, and that's not a long time. But the arraignment, he, he's in the air right now as we record this episode. Donald Trump is in the air, wheels up on uh, Perp Force One <laughs> on his way to New York for his arraignment uh, Tuesday, which will be yesterday when you hear this. Uh, at 2.15 p.m. Eastern Time. As, yeah, and that, again, that is going to be, you're, you're going to hear this episode after that arraignment happens. So what do you 
expect to be in store in New York? Um, let's let's get a little speculative because when people hear this, it will have already happened. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I think this is I mean, this is Trump in his element, right? I mean, he thrives in the spotlight, he thrives in the chaos of the moment, and I think this is setting up for something and and you see it and all the reporting is that he's sitting around with his advisors over the weekend trying to figure out a way to maximize his gain, his financial gain, his political gain through this. And, you know, he's announced that you know, when he gets back to Mar-a-Lago, as you noted, he's gonna, you know, have a primetime speech. You know, certainly I'm sure that all the Newsmax and other folks won't cover it live. I would be surprised if excerpts of that at a minimum weren't played across the board. But, you know, he's going to use this to his advantage to both solidify political support behind him, paint himself even more as a victim. There's been some talk that he wants to, you know, there it isn't clear whether or not they will release his booking photo or if one will be taken. I think they will, and I think it will be released because of the intense public interest. But he wants to use it. I mean, there's every indication he wants to slap it on merch and sell it because you know, you can put it on a flag and sell 10 million copies at the at Trump rallies and every damn, you know, campaign event that he's got. So I think we'll see a little bit of a circus in New York. I think we'll see certainly a circus upon his return to Mar-a-Lago. Um, I wish, I mean, my, my sense was let's, you know, read the indictment, see what it says, and then just ignore whatever the man has to say until he hits trial and then see what the facts are and see what the case is. But that's not the way it's going to unwind. Um, again, this is him. This is his element. The inability of the government to talk about their case gives a tremendous advantage to Trump and his team to sort of set the narrative. They've done that very well in the past, and I think they'll do it. You know, there's some you know question about whether or not there'll be a gag order. Gag orders are, are typically frowned upon. They aren't something the presumption is against one, and usually it's only when you have particularly you know, egregious statements attempting to influence the jury, certainly making any sort of threats, you might see one. But if I had to guess, my guess would be there would not be initially a gag order and there might be a warning from the judge that, you know, keep your keep your house in order. I don't want to hear you or your attorneys or your camp talking about this case. And so he won't place it and only inevitably when Trump fucks that up or Eric or Don Jr. or Laura or Kimberly or the whole little, you know, assorted fruits and nuts surrounding um, his <laughs> Trump say something that they'll be back in court asking the judge for a gag order. But I don't know. Are you, you disagree? No, I think for due process purposes, there will be a warning first. I don't think you'll get a gag order out of the gate. Um, you know, uh, looking at the Roger Stone, this is federal, of course. But, you know, he had he he went out and blabbed and blabbed and blabbed and threatened and threatened and threatened. And then a gag order was put on only after uh, several warnings were issued and only after he put a photo of crosshairs over Judge Amy Berman Jackson's face or near her face. Right. So that. Uh, yeah, I don't see it either. He certainly won't be held without bail. Um, there's a lot of bail reform in New York. Um and I don't know if the mugshot will be released, but, you know, he wants it. If he, he I'm sure he'll get a copy and he'll release it if, if, the, if the, <laughs> he'll pose, he'll uh, pose for one in front of the you know, selfie in front of the, in front of yeah, the courthouse. Hashtag victim. Um, <laughs> but another interesting thing that happened uh, in the Cy Vance interview by the Jen Psaki on MSNBC on Sunday, by the way, excellent show. Uh, if you haven't watched Inside with Jen Psaki yet, uh, the, she asked, what about the second crime that you have to pair with falsification of business records to elevate it to the level of a felony? Could it be a federal crime? And Cy Vance said, 
look, when I was Manhattan DA, we never used we 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 prosecuted plenty of falsification of business records cases. But to my knowledge, we never used federal campaign finance violations as that second law. Now, we did in other investigations and in other cases use federal statute federal to pair with the falsification of business records misdemeanors successfully. So it's not an untested theory. It's not a novel legal. The only novel legal theory here is that it's a federal campaign finance violation charge, if in fact that is the way they go. So I thought that that was interesting because I I didn't know until I saw that interview that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has used federal statutes to elevate state federal business uh, or state, excuse me, state falsification of business records uh, up to a up to a felony. Uh, And so, again, we are waiting for those charges to be unsealed. It doesn't seem like now because I know a lot of um, media outlets were uh, petitioned the judge to unseal the charges ahead of arraignment because of public interest. I it's already Monday afternoon. I don't think we're going to see an unsealing of those charges prior to arraignment. But I have a feeling that there is something more to this than just that, um, with bringing in Pecker for a second time and that bonus mystery 30-minute witness that we don't know about. I'm very interested, and I, I'm pretty sure this will probably be a speaking indictment. Um, and so I'm very interested to see what those charges are when they're unsealed yesterday. We're, we're in our time machine now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I did not know either about the using as the second offense to be able that they have in the past, uh, the Manhattan DAs use federal charges. And that's interesting, one, because I think you do have that potential here. And two, it's not novel, right? If they go that route, this is not something they're trying it for the first time. If, in fact, that has occurred in the past and Vance is, you know, he's not lying about that, that this gives, there is some precedent to doing things that way. And it does, you know, there is something, if you look at Donald Trump's record with the FEC and there's just something, they, they you're in desperate need of reform of the FEC because yes. Trump's record is like 43 and nothing. I mean, there's, I think it's either, I, I want to say it's either Rolling Stone, it might be the Huffington Post, but somebody went through and looked at like a, all the cases where Trump managed to dodge FEC sanction. And it's not because he didn't do these things. The evidence in many of those cases is absolutely crystal clear. It's that you have a split committee, which is even between Democrats and Republicans, and the Republicans just flat out refused ever to vote against him. Even when staff was sitting there saying, look, this evidence is overwhelming. Time after 43 times that yeah. nothing ever came out of the FEC. I mean, and that, that's just, if, if, you know, come on, if we want to do anything about, you know, there, there is so much wrong with our campaign election system and the the financial aspects of it are so important. The fact that somebody like Trump can engage in such horribly egregious behavior and avoid any sanction ever, not even once, I, it, it just tells me that, you know, there we need to do something to fix the FEC. But I, yeah. know, I don't think that's coming anytime soon. Yeah, I, w- I would say right now the worst job to have in this country over the last few years is, is Weintraub's, right? <laughs> the, right. The, and, you know, she's the poor, right. The, FEC. <laughs> the, the, the voice in the wilderness and should be have these impassioned pleas that I'd see on, you know, you can read on Twitter and laying out like all this data and just begging somebody for, you know, accountability and to do their job and, you know, falling on deaf ears and just, yeah. you know, the rubber stamp of the Republican commissioners just saying, nope, not going to do it. Don't care. Mm-hmm. Don't care. Gone. Madison Avenue, dead body. Don't care. Gonna say no. <laughs> yep. Unbelievable. Yeah, it is. So 
Anyway, uh, I, I, um, I'm jealous of everyone listening to this right now because they will have already known what happened uh, and, and what the charges are. So congratulations on that. You were very lucky. I'm, I'm sitting here not knowing and I'm desperately trying <laughs> to figure it out. Um, <laughs> so uh, we will obviously be talking a lot about those charges on our patron bonus episode this weekend. And of course, we'll cover it in detail on next week's episode. We have to take a quick break. We have a lot more news to get to. So stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. We have more new patrons to give a shout out to. Sean R. Britton, Linda Lee Kerr, Danielle Curry, Jerry Reynolds, Laura G., J.D., Jack McCoy, Jack Homan, Carl Lewis, Kathy Rogers, Laurel, Amanda Morris, Sinclair Lundy, Kelly Arola, Christine Harris, Kate Donovan, Chris Wiswell, Lee Markosian, and Craig Kovich. Again, apologize if I got anybody's name wrong, but thank all of you so much. I mean, this just uh, means a tremendous amount, helps us continue doing this and put it on the air. And uh, really, really want to thank you uh, for, for your support. So next up, and this, you know, again, would, any other week would be huge news. This would be the top of what we're talking about. We'd spend the bulk of the <laughs> podcast talking about it because it is so unusual, so important, but it got swept under, not swept under the rug, but very much took a much, much uh, smaller spotlight because of the indictment. But that is the judge in the Dominion defamation lawsuit against Fox News actually awarded summary judgment 
to Dominion ahead of the trial, which is scheduled to begin later this month. Now, it's a huge deal. That uh, Motions for summary judgment rarely happen. They're rarely granted. And particularly in the case of defamation, which is so very difficult to prove, putting these two unusual events, two events together where you have a judgment in favor of defamation is really unusual. It's just a, it's a blockbuster win for Dominion. And certainly coming ahead of trial, it makes the case presentation to the jury much cleaner. And it really, 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 it, it means what the, the judge granted summary judgment on falsity. And what that means is the jury doesn't have to establish that the broadcasts were false. So they start, the, the, the base of departure for the trial for the jury is that falsity has already been established. They don't need to argue about that at trial and the jury doesn't need to decide it. It's already a given. So that the jury starts with that and the judge, you know, in his wording, and I've never, it, it's interesting because of the, the, the way that it was bolded in the actual order. And this is a quote from it. The evidence developed in this civil proceeding demonstrates that it is crystal clear that none of the statements relating to Dominion about the 2020 election are true. And Crystal, the judge, not not the newspaper reporting, the judge wrote Crystal, bolded and all in caps. So, you know, is any defendant looking at that as Fox News, as their attorneys, this is, you know, probably as bad as they could have expected it to have gone. Now, the judge, importantly, he didn't grant Dominion a summary judgment on actual malice. He said, look, the jury's going to have to determine that. They need to, state of mind is a subjective issue. The jury needs to decide whether or not they had actual malice. And if they do, before they, they need to find that, before they find Fox liable for defamation. But the judge said, hey, that that is not that's not a matter of fact. That's a matter of state of mind. I'm going to leave that to the jury to do. But in any event, I, you're 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 halfway there. You're given the rest of the, the 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 evidence we have at hand. The proof of actual malice, the 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 kind of legal standard, calls a defendant's state of mind into question and does not readily lend itself to summary disposition. And that again, that was from the the court's order about why they didn't feel that they should grant or, or weigh in in terms of a, a summary judgment motion about what the state of mind was. But I think from what we've seen, I mean, my opinion, from all the evidence that has come out, and there's been, after, as part of this argument for summary judgment and or to do, for, for to dismiss the case, yet more evidence, yet more emails, yet more text back and forth have come out, which again, are all damning towards Fox. And all, in my opinion, not only clear that it was, you know, what the court found demonstrably false, but they knew it was false. And, you know, again, the jury will have to decide that. But from what I'm looking at right now, this was a huge win for Dominion and Fox. You know, I don't I don't know how they come back from this. And from what I'm seeing, I don't see Dominion having any interest in settling whatsoever. I think they've got Fox on the ropes. And they're like, <laughs> look, you can't. There's probably nothing you can offer us that would keep us from wanting to take this to a jury. So. Yeah, and I was just going to say that too. I think that this ruling and the strength of this case is exactly why we haven't seen a settlement, right? And there were reports that there were talks of a settlement north of a billion dollars. It's insane. And and I was like, don't do it, Dominion. Don't do it, right? Take it to court. You have a really strong case here. And then we get this summary judgment saying you don't even, like you said, you don't. we don't have to talk about falsity. Uh, it also removed... Um, Fox's ability to introduce certain evidence at trial because they don't have to deal with the issue of falsity. Uh, but some of these unsealed emails that we also got um, uh, this week are, again, exceedingly damning. Uh, Rupert Murdoch on Rudy Giuliani 
um, sent an email November 7th. That's the day they called it for Biden, right? Just saw a bit of Rudy ranting, a terrible influence on Donald. Carl Allen said, agree, he's unhinged, has been for a while. I think booze has got him. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's an, and then minutes later, Murdoch responds, seemingly without disagreeing, uh, should we say something Donald might see? So that correspondence all happened the same day as the New York Post ran a blistering editorial saying that the president's aides have shown no evidence that the election was stolen. It undermines faith in democracy and faith in the nation to push baseless uh, conspiracies. Get Rudy Giuliani off of television. So, the, so I mean, it's just hit after hit after hit uh, yeah. of these emails. Um, yeah, and, and let's not let's not forget our good friend Sidney Powell, who who has uh, Tucker Carlson has apparently no love lost for her, saying Sidney Powell is lying. By the way, I caught her. It's insane. And then said, you know, there's no doubt there was fraud in the election, but at this point, Trump and Lynn and Powell have so discredited their own case and the rest of us to some extent that it's infuriating. And then, you know, what I what I don't want to, you know, won't repeat on the air, but Carlson also went so far as to label Sidney Powell with the C word, both confirming his little sort of, you know, latent misogyny as well as, you know, kind of, I certainly, uh, you know, would not have a shortage of adjectives to use to append to Sidney Powell. But again, it was all, they all knew. They mm -hmm. all knew, all these folks. Rudy's drinking problems, Sidney being a kook, all of it, they all knew that. They were all talking about it. So I, I just, you're right. I'm glad Dominion listened to you and didn't settle because I think they're headed to a uh, one hell of a jury award. We'll see where that goes. Yeah. And uh, another email that we got in late 2020 uh, now fired Fox producer Abby Grossberg said that Rudy, Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell were banned because of legal concerns <laughs> in the newly unsealed Dominion filings. And then another one by October 2020, Fox senior VP, whose name is Raj Shah, who's on the witness list, by the way, for Dominion, suggests keeping Rudy uh, off the air. He says, uh, this just broke too, so it might be advisable to keep him off shows for a few days, even though the laptop story is getting traction, right? So <laughs> just uh, never ends. Um, and you know what's interesting too, uh, Pete, these emails that we're seeing are just the ones that are unsealed. Um, and so what are the ones we haven't seen? And that is yeah. why I think that going to trial and, and why I'm glad we didn't get summary judgment on actual malice, which is pretty impossible to do because it is a subjective thing that has to be decided by a jury, like you said, uh, why I'm glad it didn't get summary judged out of the way because we get to now see all of these things that are currently not available to the public on display in trial. I'm, and I'm, I'm wondering if... Uh, if this like because you remember when I said in the first segment that the media outlets wanted the judge in the Trump indictment to unseal the charges ahead of arraignment. They also asked for video uh, to be allowed and press to be allowed in the in the courtroom during the arraignment. I, ha I haven't heard if that's going to be a thing yet or not. But I'm wondering if this trial is going to be public. If I were Dominion, I would almost demand it. Yeah, well, I mean, for sure, the media will be in there. The question is, I don't. Right. I would I would think. 
Dominion has an interest in the government. In the case of Trump in Manhattan, the government, the DA took the position that we don't have an opinion, right? We're going to defer to the court. And some of that's like, unless you have a real strong need, you don't want to like, you know, you, you don't want to anger the court by saying we want something or the other that just deferring to the court's judgment is the smart sort of strategic move. And I, in the past, the the judge up in New York has not allowed uh, cameras in the courtroom. So I don't, I have, I haven't heard either which way that's going to go, but I would think, you know, again, at a minimum, you know, these are open, our courts are open. So whether or not we have the benefit of actually the real live, you know, broadcast of what's going on there or not, there will certainly will be very competent and talented media folks in there. So we're going to know, we will find it out. It's just, the question is, I just think to that, you know, who's that knucklehead who was tried and convicted of murdering his, his wife and son down in South Carolina that everybody was like, you know, it seemed like every network was playing that. I, I, can imagine if Dominion is if the if the court allows cameras in that courtroom, God, that's going to be must see TV. Because you're right. I mean, we've seen a lot of strong evidence. In no way have we seen all the evidence. And the things that they're going to put into evidence to convince that jury that they had this recurring pattern over time, repeatedly, of all these people knowing about this falsehood and nevertheless to prove that actual malice, they went ahead anyway, knowing that it was wrong, knowing that it was damaging. And I would think for the jury, one of the way you're going to want to do that is just showing again and again and again and again how they said something wrong, how they knew it was wrong, how they were told it was wrong and they didn't care and they went ahead and did it anyway. And then all these grace notes about how they all hated each other. They all hated the people that were coming on. They all thought they were crazy. They all thought they were insane because that's all critical for the jury to know. So you're right. I, I'm glad that this is going to trial. We are absolutely going to see things that we have not seen yet in terms of evidence. And I think it's going to be overwhelming. Yeah, me too. And I and I think like you know that part of falsity that you brought up um, with regard to summary judgment, the decision by the judge here, uh, has been unfortunately drowned out by the indictment. Not unfortunate. I'm not sad that Donald Trump was indicted, but uh, you know it just happened to come on that same day. But uh, it's important to note that a judge has determined that everything Fox News said was a lie. Yeah. untrue and that is a judgment that is not a an opinion by a judge that's not like uh remember judge carter on the eastman emails that it's preponderance of an evidence or, or more likely than not that eastman and trump violated title 18 section 371 and 1512 c2 to hand over eastman's emails right uh that is not a summary judgment that is a it's a ruling that the crime fraud exception applies to emails um but this is a different level, a different standard of proof to get a summary judgment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the, it, because again, you don't have to, it, it takes one of the things they have to prove off the table. And so that allows, it makes it simpler. Well, the hard thing, if you're trying to like prosecute something in many ways, the cleaner and simpler it is, the better it is. Because as a prosecutor, you're trying to convince the jury, Hey, this is a simple story. Here's the story and you can track it all. And the defense, of course, is throwing a thousand things against the wall, trying to muddy everything up, trying to make it complicated. But it's like telling a story if you've got three characters versus you're walking into some, you know, Shakespearean production where you've got 40 characters and you got to keep track of it all. If you're trying to tell a story to a jury, a simpler story typically for the prosecution is a better one. So having established this is false, you, you take that sort of like you don't have to that whole act, act one or whatever you want to call it. That's already a given, so you don't have to spend your time on it. And you know, one more, you know, at least from the last thought for me, in my mind, the compelling new evidence is not going to be any new text or any new email. 
I think it's likely that we're going to hear from on the stand Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram and Murdoch and God knows who else, and have them in their own words, having been sworn in, be questioned, be cross-examined, and then have redirect. I, to, I, that's, that's what I can't wait to hear. Because in my mind, that yeah. is going to be the compelling, how do you get around your statement? You know, did you, Tucker, Mr. Carlson, did you really believe Sidney Powell was a, you know, effing C? Just that, that's going to be amazing to watch. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I'm the plaintiff, if I'm the lawyers for Dominion, nearly all my statements in court are going to begin with that. That it's, hey, it's already established that Fox News lied. Uh, let me ask you a question about actual malice. Um, which is, you know, a different thing to to prove, but it, that's it's going to be so. It's look for if this is televised or when we get the reporting, look for the prosecution or the plaintiffs' uh, lawyers in this case, Dominion lawyers in this case, to consistently bring up and hammer home that it has already been determined that these statements are lies. Now it's just up to you, jury, whether they those were they, it was done with actual malice. So it's going to be really fascinating to yeah, watch, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, future podcasts will have to do dramatic readings where we can alternate <laughs> being attorney and and Fox News celebrity, and we can go back and forth with that week's testimony. So that'll be uh, that'll be pretty interesting. Oh, that'll be fun. I can do a pretty good Laura Ingram. So. <laughs> good, done, done, done. Give me Tucker, and we'll we'll argue over Hannity. And if you give me a box of Franzi. <laughs> Rosé in about an hour. Yeah, did, I can yeah, do a really Judge good Janine, Judge Janine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get Cicely Strong on the, we'll try and get her to come Jesus. in, see if we can lure her into the podcast. I and... can't wait for that cold open. <laughs> I can't. All right. Well, thank you, uh, everybody. We have more news to get to, but we need to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, 
If I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Just a few more patrons to thank. And again, sorry, we we have two weeks worth. And that's why we're doing this at the beginning of every segment. So thank you for, uh, for allowing us to do that, because I really want to take the time to thank our patrons, because again, they make the show possible. Michelle Weald, Janet Keller, Lou Tufford, Sally Cribb, Scott Winters, Karen Lee Barkdell, Kimberly Fogel, Constance, Kathleen Evers or Evers, PJ Shapiro, Aaron Weinberg, Thomas Edmondson, Lane, Democracy Matters, thank you, Babs McGee, Peggy Vallejo, or Vallejo, Last Roman, uh, hashtag 6358, Michael Miklos, Craig Silver, Diane Klee, Mike Poland, Jen, Samantha Allen, Ryan Martinez, Heather C., Annie, Annie Paddock, S.L. Koba K., Leslie Pfeiffer, and Met Gamble. Thank you so much. Sorry if I mispronounced any of your names. All right, let's cover the rest of this week's news in kind of a lightning round because so much happened this week. Um, so why don't you, uh, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'm kind of touching on all the discussion we've had about Jim Jordan's weaponization and oversight committee. Shocking no one, CNN reported a number of top House GOP lawmakers have disclosed in recent days their efforts to keep the former president informed on the pace and substance of their investigations. Now, it's important that, you know, the lines of communication on this appear to go both ways. Not only are Trump, his aides and close allies regularly apprised of what the Republicans committee is doing, they also at times are appearing to exert influence over it. So, you know, it's it's essentially the Republican Party, the Republican majority in Congress acting as a tool of Trump and not only saying, hey, this is where we're going, but letting Trump say, well, why don't you look into this? Why don't you look into that? And the, you know, the most kind of egregious example recently in my mind, we saw several top House Republicans trying to intervene with uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's investigation, sending him, I think at this point, at least two letters where the, um, and this is according to ABC reporting, the counsel for Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. So his Bragg is the district attorney, has a, a general counsel that advises him on matters of law and sort of is the the general counsel for the district attorney's office. He wrote a letter in which he urged House Republicans um, to denounce former President Donald Trump's attacks on Bragg's office, saying that they're collaborating with him to undermine his criminal probe. And this is from a letter from Bragg's office to Jim Jordan, quote, you and many of your colleagues have chosen to collaborate with Mr. Trump's efforts to vilify and denigrate the integrity of elected state prosecutors and trial judges, unquote. Now, it's important in that context that Trump began calling congressional allies on Thursday night, urging them to defend him following news of the indictment. And I guess, Ellison, in my mind, the question is, at some point, doesn't this start looking like criminal obstruction or some attempt to intimidate or some potentially illegal activity on the part of Congress? Yeah. Um, and, and I've thought about this a lot, too, because, you know, a lot of the speech or debate clause arguments that we're hearing, particularly the Scott Perry speech or debate clause, um, there's a long case history of official committees, official committee business being protected by the speech or debate clause, even if it's 
wep even if it's a weaponization committee that's being weaponized by <laughs> by a, a you know a, an indicted former president um i i don't see personally um anyone being able to hold any of the house gop members to account for this criminally sure they can you know there are other checks on this there's um to, there's checks on the speech or debate um privilege which include expulsion and censure but i don't think we're going to see any of that in that body because it is held by a majority of republicans slim majority nonetheless but uh i i don't see this as as being criminal but with regard to what trump does He's not shielded by speech or debate clause. So I'm not sure how or if uh, this could be brought in as some sort of obstruction of justice if you have the proof or to bring that forward or if it could be just used in sort of a as a totality of evidence in a pattern of behavior type situation for maybe a bigger obstruction charge that, we, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past Jack Smith uh, even though this is state and not federal, to say, look at this pattern of behavior. He's colluding, conspiring with weaponization committee to uh, impact the outcome of an investigation. He can't charge for that, I don't think, but or you know, but he can put it in a in a pattern of behavior to show intent uh, as for other obstruction um, uh, crimes, perhaps even the documents obstruction case. So I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see this pop up somewhere, not as a crime in and of itself but to show a pattern of behavior in another crime. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's right. Uh, if you read these letters, and I you know, encourage everyone to go pull them up because they're not, they're not heavy in legalese. They're written in a way that you can, as a non-lawyer, read them. They're very professional. There's not a lot of name calling or sort of bloviating or anything you know, that's sort of partisan in flavor. It's just a very straightforward, here's what you asked. Here's what we do. Here's the law. Here's why we're going to do this. Here's why we're not going to do that. We continue to, you know, are willing to meet and confer to figure out what we can do to, you know, provide any information that we can that is, we believe, lawful for you to have. And for all this other stuff that we believe is not, we're not going to do it. And I do think, I think some of those things, they do hint at this idea of whether or not there's any sort of improper interference. And I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think that is done for the purpose of saying we're looking at this as a violation of law. I think they're hanging it out there as sort of a red line saying, look, you need to know, and you probably already do, but we're going to put it on paper and we're going to make it known to the public that if you do this too egregiously, if you go too far down this line, it's going to start looking an awful lot like obstruction. And so you're just putting it out there, drawing your attention to it. I'm sure, again, the Republicans already know it, but what it does is it causes the media, it causes you and me, and it causes everybody to sort of... It, it it plants that seed of like, oh yeah, this is, this could get to the point where it starts looking like something illegal and it draws a line out there that makes a, makes a public line of it. And so I think it's, again, if, if you've got the time, pull up those, pull up the letters and read them. They're very well done. They're very competent, very professional, you know, well done. If it was the general counselor, you know, he, he or her, he, I think, and his staff, you know, just excellent work product and and do a good job essentially of telling Jordan to, you know, shove it in a very professional way. Yeah. And uh, I think that the general counsel down there, her name is Leslie Duback. She's the one who's oh, writing she, okay. these letters. So I just wanted to bring her up, name her. Uh, because yeah, she I, did. Uh, this is great work. It's Yeah, it's absolutely a perfect. It's not like a Jim Jordan, you know, type letter. It's 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 backed up by case law. You know, it's it's well thought out. It's professional. And 
it is a little bit accusatory, but it is definitely a pushback. It is definitely kind of a we're not going to take we're not going to take it, um, so to speak. So uh, let's move on uh, to the next story in our uh, lightning round. It's kind of slow lightning, but that's cool. <laughs> Douglas Mackey has been convicted. And this is from the Department of Justice. Douglas Mackey, also known as Ricky Vaughn, was convicted today by a federal jury in Brooklyn of the charge of conspiracy against rights stemming from his scheme to deprive individuals of their constitutional right to vote. And you'll see a lot of right-wing news outlets putting out memes saying, if they can put you in jail for sharing a meme, you know, blah, blah, whatever. Uh, But in 2016, Mackey established an audience on Twitter with about 58,000 followers. Weak. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, Between (laughs) September 2016 and November 2016, Mackey conspired with other influential Twitter, Twitter users and with members of private online groups to use social media platforms, including Twitter, to disseminate fraudulent messages that encourage supporters of presidential candidate Hillary Clinton to vote via text message or social media, which in reality was legally invalid. And he was targeting disenfranchised voters. He was targeting black voters. Now, Mackey, is, he's been convicted. He's facing a 10-year uh, maximum in prison. If I don't know what his prior, I don't know if he's got any priors. I haven't seen his rap sheet or anything like that. If he has no priors, it'll probably be close, closer to like a year or two. Uh, on a 10-year max sentence, uh, and maybe uh, uh, some aggravating factors could bring it up to maybe three years, um, something like that. But uh, this is a serious conviction, and because he deprived voters, uh, particularly black voters, of their right to vote. Uh, and so I'm I'm very glad about this conviction. This is just one of a million ways they did this in 2016, Pete. Yeah, and in a lot of surrounding this trial, there's a lot of discussion, and this trial sort of crystallized. Where does where does sort of dirty tricks? Where does saying something actually cross the line into criminal behavior? When does First Amendment protected speech become criminal in nature? And I, to me, this case, what at least was publicly known about it, didn't seem that in my mind contentious at all. It seemed very clear that it was designed to suppress voting amongst minority populations. It seemed very clear that there are falsehoods deliberately designed to prevent people from voting. It didn't wasn't some sort of like crazy meme of, you know, Hillary behind bars or it, it was the the intention was very straightforward and that was to prevent people from voting for Clinton. Period. And and I'm not sure why it gained a little bit of a cause celeb amongst, you know, more mainstreamy sort of First Amendment advocates, and in my mind, it 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 probably had more purchase there in those arguments than I think it deserved. But I, I think it's important. I think it absolutely is necessary to acknowledge that this sort of behavior went on throughout sixteen, throughout twenty, and I assume you know will absolutely be there in twenty twenty four, and to create a record and precedent of saying you know we will go after this, we will investigate and prosecute it, and we'll start creating case law and creating, you know, a history of convicting people that you can't go doing it. So I'm, I, you know, I'm very pleased with the outcome. I think it's absolutely the right call. And, you know, we'll see if it, it, it can't help, but just like we're seeing all these people who are like, you know, talking about, well, do they want to rally for Trump right now and online messaging forums saying, well, be careful. It might be set up by the feds. You saw what happened on January 6th. Same sort of thing. I mean, again, the, the criminal justice system, one, it exists to punish the person who commits the crime, but it also exists to serve as a deterrent effect. And my hope is that, you know, other would-be Mackies take a look at this and maybe hesitate a little bit before they start engaging in illegal voting suppression. 
Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of the Jacob Wool Jack Berkman conviction with their yeah. robocalls uh, across three states to black voters who said if you register to vote or if you show up to vote, uh, they will force vaccinations on you and they will execute uh, outstanding search warrants on you. Uh, so, again, designed to specifically suppress the black vote in three states, and they were uh, convicted of that as well. So, yeah, and, and I, I like your, I, you know, comments about deterrence, too, because a lot of people were waiting for, you know, Trump to be held accountable for his actions on January 6th, like we talked to Harry Dunn on the on the episode of Jack this week, who said, you know, you get the hitman should go to jail, too. Yep. Uh, but the fact that we've, uh, you know, indicted uh, a thousand people who attacked the Capitol and there's about a thousand more coming and a lot of them are now into the three year, four year, 10 year, 11 year sentence range uh, is is doing what it's intended to do, which is to punish the criminals, but also deter others from doing. It. And that's why I think we see like 12 chodes with Trump flags outside of Mar-a-Lago today instead of massive, massive protests because the DOJ's deterrence uh, has is is working, at least for the foot soldiers. It's, it's time to get to the top. We're getting we're getting to the top. But I, I think that that's a very important point. Uh, and I'm very thankful uh, to the Department of Justice uh, in um, for, for doing their job in arresting the people and uh, holding the people accountable who were the foot soldiers on the ground attacking the Capitol. It really, I think, has made an incredible difference in what we're seeing now. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, I, you know, hold my tongue to see what we see on Tuesday in New York. But I mean, 35,000 uniformed officers. Come on. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think one, because it is New York. It's not like it's, uh, you know, Mar-a-Lago or even out in Long Island. I, I think it'll be more subdued. But I don't think, you know, regardless of what the sort of political sentiment is within the NYPD or others, I don't think you're going to see a large scale. I hope certainly that there won't be any large-scale um, sort of protest. I think he'll be in and out of there quickly. He's got to get back for his big primetime, you know, fundraising rally. And they so. keep getting these lone wolf guys too, right? The CNN bomber, DePape, the Pelosi attack on Paul Pelosi, the, the guy who shot up the FBI field office, these stochastic terrorists, these one-offs. They keep getting arrested, charged, convicted, and, you know, will go to prison. And, and I hope that that also deters future, like, lone wolf terrorists from 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 acting since the, it seems like the uh insurrection type protest crowds uh, and riots are, are are now being subdued so we'll see how that goes but you know there there was a report and this just sent chills up my spine that that on like uh what is the donald dot win the donald yeah, dot win yeah, or something no, like that parlor, dot win now yeah Gab, Gitter, Forchet, all those places, all those channels where they they sort of you know where they were uh, initially to you know getting the January sixth uh, insurrection together, they're now working on recruiting suicidal, lonely, sad individuals to go on suicide terrorist missions. That's what their aim is. That's what their focus is. And uh, I I would love to hear from Chris Ray what he's doing about this. Uh, so. <laughs> But we haven't yet, so we'll see how that goes. But we do have uh, one more story that I'm yeah, very excited to, to talk to you about because this it, reminds me of some shit that you'd be doing if you weren't wrongfully terminated from the yeah, FBI. It's, it's a Johns Hopkins spy. And let me just editorialize. You don't hear a Georgetown University spy. Just a little. It seems to be a Johns Hopkins issue at their School of Advanced and International Studies. But one of their students, Victor Muller Ferreira, 
was accepted as a student at Johns Hopkins and said he was Brazilian. In reality, he was actually a Russian intelligence operative originally from Kaliningrad, according to a series of international investigations, and series meaning one, you know, a couple in Europe, one in Brazil, as well as an indictment that the Justice Department found on Friday in federal court. And his real name is Sergei Cherkasov, and he spent nearly a decade building his fictitious Ferrera persona. And his, you know, the, the group that he surrounded him was a tight circle of Russian handlers. And suddenly poised, they almost had a deep cover spy in the U.S. Capitol, you know, going to school in, you know, Johns Hopkins Sices in downtown D.C. And positioned to forge connections because of the nature of not only the people who, the other students who come through Sice, it's the, the master's program is very well known. It's very reputable. You get a lot of people from the U.S. government. You get a lot of people from the international community who come through there and go to get a mid-career master. So if you're somebody, if you're an illegal in the Russian intelligence services, it's a great place to just simply spot people who are going through, not to recruit them at the moment, but everything you can. We saw this too, you know, with all with, with illegal cases that I worked on. You know, one of the the couple up in Boston, they were there under some Canadian identities, but he was at Harvard at the John F., at the Kennedy School and getting a, a mid career master's, doing the same thing. But it's it's not so much I'm going to recruit my classmate, but it is all these people who are going through. I'm going to note. You know, what are their foibles? What do they like? What are their hobbies? Do they drink too much? Do they have a gambling problem? Do they have a womanizing or manizing problem? All the things which might provide useful in 10 years and 20 years, because guess what? You know, these folks who go through, rise up through, they may be a mid-level diplomat now. Maybe they become an ambassador. Maybe they become a prime minister. Maybe they become a, you know, a defense minister. So being in that position is enormously um, advantageous if you're in any intel service, but certainly in a Russian one. Uh, to collect information just like that. So, you know, using the access that the two years, we think more or less that he spent in Washington, D.C., he was filing reports back to Russia. And in particular, he was doing that at the time, reporting about how officials in the Biden administration were responding to the Russian military buildup shortly before the war in Ukraine. And we know that because the FBI put it in the complaint that was filed. And again, what's really interesting to me I'm going to kind of bounce around some. If you go and it's online now, the complaint is very much, you were talking about a, a speaking indictment or speaking complaint. This is very much a, a huge amount of detail in the complaint, full of pictures. There's a lot of detail. I mean, it's 46 pages long. They go through, they include pictures and maps from Brazil, where his legend identity came from, talking about meeting spots, uh, drop sites where you know material was left or picked up. It is a fascinating read just from the standpoint of how tradecraft works, but it also goes into a lot of, it, it provides you some window into information that the Brazilians had. Now, what's interesting too is some of the vagueness in the complaint. The complaint doesn't, the complaint just says a Russian intelligence service. It doesn't say whether it was FSB or GRU or SVR, the sort of domestic intel service of the military intel service of the foreign intelligence service. So the, the, the US government's being a little bit um, cute in what they're providing information-wise and what they're not. Uh, I'm sure there are reasons for that. I mean, probably they want to not completely show the Russian side how much information we actually have, but it also points to a lot of information that the Brazilians have. So one, the Brazilians were willing to share it with us because we've got it. But then two, it kind of raises the question of like, okay, did the US go to Brazil and say, hey, by the way, you know, you, you ought to look here. 
Did the Brazilians welcome in the FBI to come in or other elements of the U.S. government to come in and do investigation with him? He was trying to get a, a job within the uh, International Court of Justice in Europe. You know, Interestingly enough, if war crimes from the Ukraine for various members of the Russian military were to be brought, that would be an ideal place. If you're a Russian to have inside information about what the evidence was, where those potential trials were going. But the the read, the complaint is a fascinating read. Again, read written in a way that if you, you you don't need to be a counterintelligence officer or an intelligence officer to understand it, it's a very sort of interesting, just straight narrative. And it for those people who like pictures, it's got pictures. There's, you know, a little park in Brazil, a little spot in the bushes between two posts where things were hidden. So it's a it's a really fascinating document. Um, you know, going back, I think. He to to fast forward. He graduated. He was he was down in Brazil. His goal again was to go and get a job in the Hague. He was due to start an internship there. He applied for and received an internship last year, and that he was literally on his way there and was turned around by Dutch authorities, acting on information that came from the FBI. So he actually got there. the The Dutch turned him around, <laughs> stuck him back on a plane, and sent him back to Brazil, where he was arrested upon landing. And he's currently serving a 15-year prison term for uh, falsifying uh, identity documents in Brazil. The U.S. is trying to expedite him. I, I think if memory serves, I think the Russians are trying, you know, they came up with these bogus charges that, oh, we want him for drug charges and you need to extradite <laughs> him to us because we really need to get our hands on him because he's a bad man, which is, you know, obviously cover for trying to spring him free. But it's a great... It's a great story. It's a great espionage story. It's a great story about an intelligent success. It's a great story about exactly why, even though you know the FBI wrapped up these you know ten plus Russian illegals back you know a decade ago, decade thirteen years ago, Russians are still doing this and they're still getting value. And but for some really good intelligence and counterintelligence work, Russians might have a guy inside the ICJ in the Hague. So great story. I don't. I, Maybe I'm. Yeah, I'm certainly it, biased. It, I, I I love this sort of stuff, but I no, think it's, it's I love a, it's it too. A compelling and read. you and I should go pitch it to Netflix um, as a series because I would watch the shit out of that show. <laughs> yeah, to, if I'm being honest, um, I mean, he was he was trying to get into the State Department, CIA, but you know, the part that you bring up that's so important here is to learning is learning all of his cohorts, you know, students at Johns Hopkins faults and weaknesses so that when they are all over the State Department and CIA and FBI or, you know, the Hague or positions like that in the International Criminal Court, he knows how to use them to either advance himself to get more intelligence to feed back to the GRU or whoever he's feeding it back to, but, you know, also to potentially flip other people. You know, it, we... You and I, Pete, having been former government officials, know exactly the kind of person that is flippable uh, in, a, you know, because we took our we took our online annual training about, you know, is Christie a threat? You know, does she have divorce problems? Does she talk about money? Does she have a gambling problem? Is she always complaining about the Christy government? Christie said, Allison, hold the door. I forgot my badge <laughs> to get into the skiff. Do you let Christie in? Do you know Christie? You need to go report to the supervisor that you left your badge and you need to get it back. Stop I have a thumb to... drive with a fun game on it. Would you put yeah. it in your computer and try it? Gosh, no like thanks, Christie. But, you know, more importantly, and, and, and the training is hilarious, but they do bring up really important points in that training, which are the, the 
characteristics that you look for in someone who is a vulnerable uh, a person uh, to you know, to the baddies, basically. And and it's all ingrained in our head. I worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs, okay? I wasn't in the in the alphabet soup up in D.C., but it's still very, we, we still had to know that, you know, uh, no matter what federal agency you work in. So I just find that absolutely fascinating and, and that that is indeed what he was doing. And then, you know, then, of course, my question is, how many more are there? Um, and, uh, I, you know, that this still happens is a testament to the fact that even though Russia's physical army is shit, they are still, um, you know, once the GRU put out that statement, I think in 2012, 2011, something like that, that the new warfare is this, um, is, is, is cyber and tradecraft and shit like that. And uh, ever since uh, it, that's been their focus, that's where all their money and attention goes. Yeah. And it also points out how hard it is to do illegals work and some like he did stupid shit right i mean he had on his possession like these very sort of like corny his legend right his backstory of what he notionally was in brazil what his mother was his father when he saw him why he didn't see him why he had a weird accent and he kind of wrote it out in a in a bizarre sort of way and frankly is from a tradecraft perspective in a very unprofessional way and reading this i i this is this is let me put it this way it strikes me when I read this as certainly illegal, certainly somebody who was an officer, certainly somebody who had tradecraft training. It does not strike me as the top tier of Russian operations. It strikes me as having a level of lack of sophistication and sloppiness and lack of professionalism that I would not associate with the top tiers of their intelligence operations. And so, you know, read into that what you will as to where I think what service he might have come from. But I think it's important also to look at him in the context. There have been a ton, and I, I need to sit down and write about it. I, I'll tweet every now and then about, you know, sure are a lot of Russian spies being wrapped up, Brazilian version, U.S. version. But the point of the matter is there have been a lot of Russian, both officers and agents who have been wrapped up in the past year since, well, a little more, since the invasion and the run-up to the invasion of Ukraine. And in my mind, that speaks to both a, a, a sort of heightened interest in it and potentially new sources of information, which are providing Western nations insight into what's going on around the world, not just in the US, but everywhere around the world. And some, there was a recent Washington Post article that talks about a lot of these uh, arrests and expulsions or detentions and talking about the fact that the US was behind several of them, certainly when it comes to Western nations. So it, it tells me there's an even as much as this story is amazing, and it's like a little vignette. When you step back and you look at this broad pattern, I think there's very likely an even more compelling, interesting story of a person or people or compromises of, you know, secure communications or whatever the case may be that's given the U.S. an insight into a broad range of activity. And we're seeing it's like suddenly the U.S. gets access to this apple tree and all of a sudden all these different apples start getting pulled off the tree and, you know... <laughs> taken off the taken out out of the arena. So great story individually for Cherkasov, but also a fascinating time as a, you know, former spy hunter to be looking at everything we're doing against the Russians right now. And how they're getting their ass handed to them, which I <laughs> where appreciate. would you rank the sophistication of this guy as compared to say like a Maria Butina, who seemed to just kind of be acting on her own, right? Like she seemed roguey. Butina was not very good. If if I were to compare the, the the best that I have seen recently would be folks like 
the Murphys, uh, the 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 Russian couple, I think in New Jersey, you know, Don Heathfield and and uh, Tracy Foley. I mean, he was Andre Bezukov, and she was Alina Vavilova. I forget what the the Murphys' true name was. They were very professional, right? I mean, they were either Canadian citizens, you know, U.S. ostensible citizens, but very very professional and and just fastidious in keeping their U.S. legend, their Western legend, separated from their true identity. And my point is, you, you don't. I don't think most people understand how hard it is at every little aspect of your life to maintain a solid cover identity. All the little ways you can mess that up, all the little ways that you can, you know, leave a photograph or accidentally, you know, have some sort of communication with somebody that isn't covered as well as it should be. And when you read the Cherkasov complaint, he he does fuck up. I mean, there are things where he messes it up, where it's not very well done. And so either that's poor training, poor discipline, um, sort of a lower caliber of individual. You know, is this the case that they had all these exquisitely trained people who got wiped out? And so they're rushing people out into the field with maybe less training, less competence. You know, you're not picking from the, you yeah. know, the 98th percentile. You're pulling somebody from the 60th percentile. But, you know, grading this guy compared to the, you know, certainly the SVR illegals we saw that we wrapped up. I, you know, if those guys, I'd give them probably mostly an A minus. This guy'd probably give you know a C plus, B minus. I, I, it, it's just a very, it's 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 sloppier, and that makes me anyway. I don't want to. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, it, it's, yeah, a little easier to catch. <laughs> yeah, and again, to the point, like we tip, we catch the dumb ones, right? We catch the dumb spies, we catch the dumb criminals, we catch the dumb, you know people who, you know, commit financial fraud and everything else. It's like people who are particularly good and particularly sophisticated. You always worry that, you know, you, 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 we don't, we don't see them in fact, because they're good. And so there was always a worry, whatever the violation that, you know, we're getting the dumb folks and missing the good ones because they are good at what they do. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's a sign that there aren't a lot of good ones left or, or like you said, you know, they, they're pulling from the lower ranks now because, uh, you know, of what's going on with the invasion of Ukraine. We'll see. Um, anyway, thank you so much for going over that. And thanks to all of you for listening to Clean Up on Aisle 45. Pete and I will be back this weekend with a bonus episode for those at the $2 level. And uh, we'll tell you all about the arraignment and how it went or how it didn't go or what happened or if there was handcuffs or what the charges are. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to you about and, it this weekend. Um, but uh, thanks if, so much for, yeah, if, for Trump's, if Trump's 757 flying back turns left and goes to Portugal, we'll have an emergency <laughs> podcast to discuss the, <laughs> the implications yeah. of that. I was like, can that shit box of a plane make it to Saudi Arabia? Keep, keeps going to Cuba. yep yep all right anyway thank you so much i've been allison gill and i'm peach truck and we'll see you next week on clean up on aisle 45 clean up on aisle 45 is written researched and produced by allison gill with editing by molly hockey our art and logo designer by joelle reader and moxie design studios and our music is composed and performed by adam orr Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, 
a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.